On the first trip that I made to practice in Burma, I went to a small monastery outside of Mandalay, about an hour and a half outside of the city, across the Irrawaddy River, called the Chaswa Monastery, where some of you may have practiced and where some of you may practice. They hold retreats there every winter, especially for Western yogis with instruction in English. And it's really a delightful place to practice. I was so inspired the first time that I went there. It was relatively early in my practice career. And I didn't really know at that point if I would ever return to Burma again, let alone to this spot. So I decided that I wanted to bring back with me a Buddha image, a Buddha statue, what's called a Buddha Rupa, a Buddha body, to keep an, on my shrine to inspire me through the years of practice to come. And as some of you may know, Burma has some of the few uh, remaining stands of old growth teak in the world, some of the few areas that haven't been deforested. And it's possible to find some really very lovely, uh, elegant, simple statues carved out of teak. So I spoke to uh, the people that I knew in the area, some of the Burmese people that were associated with the monastery, and asked them about how to go about finding a nice statue to take back with me. And they recommended that I go to this one uh, temple precinct, kind of a big neighborhood around this large temple that was uh, known for its temple arts, where there were lots of carvers, uh, woodworkers, stone carvers, metal workers, all sorts of uh, different arts associated with uh, temple decoration. And then they also told me that when I was looking for my statue to make sure that I got one that was made out of heartwood, which is the very center of the trunk of the big teak tree. And this was a new concept to me. You know, I don't know a whole lot about woodworking. This isn't my field. I'm not an artist or a craftsperson. But they explained that the heartwood is the densest part of the wood. It has the finest grain. So it's stronger, and it takes a better finish, and it can be worked uh, much uh, more uh, elaborately. It's also more resistant to changes in temperature and humidity, unlike the sapwood, which is closer to the surface of the, the trunk of the tree, which can crack when conditions change. So they explained that if I lifted up the statue and looked at the base of it, I'd be able to see all the rings of the wood from the tree that it had come from. And I could make sure that it was all entirely made out of heartwood, that there wasn't a change in the texture or the quality of the wood around the edges that showed that part of it was cut from the sapwood. So this was my first introduction to the concept of heartwood and its merits that if you want to build or carve something out of wood that's really strong, that's durable, or that's really beautiful and lasting, refined, then you need to use the heartwood of the tree. And this was apparently true in the time of the Buddha as well, something that I guess would have been a matter of uh, general knowledge, common knowledge. And so the Buddha at one time gave a teaching that built on this general knowledge called The Greater Discourse on the Simile of the Heartwood. And in this teaching, the Buddha compares spiritual life to a great tree growing in the forest, much like the great Bodhi tree that he sat under on the night of his enlightenment for shelter. And he compares the spiritual seeker to someone who's wandering through the forest in search of heartwood, in search of material that will hold up under time, under adverse conditions, in order to build something very strong and beautiful out of their spiritual life. So just as we need the heartwood if we want to build something strong and durable out of wood, if we want to build something really strong and durable out of our spiritual life, then we need to seek the heartwood of this practice. We need to seek the heartwood of the Dharma. So in this sutta, the Buddha explains the various benefits of spiritual life, the various advantages that can come our way. And he talks about what is and isn't the spiritual heartwood that we're seeking. So that's what I want to talk about tonight, the heartwood of the spiritual life.
So when we first take up some kind of spiritual practice, the initial benefits that we gain from it are bound to be fairly superficial. It's only natural that it should happen that way. And the Buddha refers to these kinds of superficial benefits by the catchphrase of gain, honor, and renown. And this refers to the aspects of our practice that provide us really with personal gratification of one type or another. And in particular, gratification of the senses or gratification of the ego. So in modern terminology, we have a phrase for this. It's spiritual materialism. This is seeking out the fairly superficial material or psychological benefits of practice. In the Buddhist time, as today in many traditional Buddhist societies, there were really many practical reasons for taking up spiritual life. If a person was ordained as a monk or a nun, they would be provided for by the community. So spiritual life, in a very fundamental way, could be a way of just providing for the basic necessities of one's life. And this is true in many Buddhist countries today as well, that many people still ordain because they're sick or they're hungry, and that's simply the only way that they have to take care of themselves. It can be a way to get an education if there's no other options, or a way to move up the social ladder. But as lay people practicing here in the West, the material benefits of our spiritual life tend to be a bit more esoteric. They don't tend to be quite so concrete. And they generally take the form of pleasant sense experiences that are available to us through our practice. So depending on where we practice, where we meditate, where we congregate, there may be really beautiful buildings, you know, art, architecture. There may be really lovely music and chanting associated with the practice, candles, incense. Uh, There may be special clothing, jewelry, all sorts of ritual items that we can acquire. Here at IMS, as you may have noticed, we tend to keep things fairly simple. So we're not exactly bombarded with sense pleasures here. But there are still many simple pleasures, as I'm sure you've all experienced during your time here. There's the beauty of the New England fall, if nothing else, the beauty of the natural world that surrounds us here at this time of year. There's the simple elegance of this renovated hall that we get to enjoy now that was just recently completed, which is really quite uh, nice in its own simple way. And there's the simple uh, beauty of the Buddha images and all the little offerings, the artwork that's scattered around the center. And because we're quiet and attentive, we often find that we're able to really appreciate and enjoy these simple pleasures in a very keen and special way. I can remember from my own time spent in retreat here in the fall, many, many of these kinds of moments, moments of simple appreciation of beauty around me, which many of which we're experiencing right now, you know, just going outside to do your walking meditation during the day. There's those brilliant colors of the leaves and this blue sky that we've been having. And if we go out to walk at night, if it's a clear night, there's that vast expanse of stars above us which is, you know, a real treat for somebody like me coming from the city, or even just that huge luminous moon that was out last night, the full moon. And when we're mindful and practicing, we're really fully present, at moments at least, to receive that beauty in a very special kind of way. So this form, so this is the form of gain that most of us encounter in our practice here in the West. This is what's available to us on retreat in terms of sense pleasures. The rewards of what the Buddha called honor and renown refer to the ego gratification that's potentially available to us through our practice. So in the Buddha's time, and also still today in many Buddhist cultures, there's great respect given to people who are seen as particularly devout or spiritual. So just by becoming a monk or a nun or being known to be a serious meditator, somebody who spends time in retreat, 
a person automatically becomes a venerable one, someone deserving of respect and a certain amount of deference. And if that person cuts a particularly impressive figure, exuding some sense of serenity, benevolence, calm, metta, maybe offering profound teachings, then their reputation might spread and they might even acquire a following of devotees who are very anxious to sing their praises and provide for their needs. So spiritual practice can be a way for an ambitious and talented person in the East to become successful in a very worldly kind of way. And this was and is seen as a real reward of spiritual life by many people. But again, as lay people practicing here in the West, the honor and renown that's available to most of us tends to be a little more understated, a little more subtle. But it's still present in various forms. So for example, some of us may move in social circles where being a meditator or being a Buddhist or just being seen to be spiritual in general uh, is considered kind of sexy. You know, it might have a certain kind of elan that's associated with us. It can be good for our image. Or if we participate in the spiritual community, then sitting along a retreat like this can give us a certain amount of status. It can bring a certain amount of respect. Of course, many of us are in opposite kinds of situations. (laughs) But perhaps more importantly, because of that, the honor and renown that we receive can also be generated internally. This is a lot more uh, important factor for many of us. So even if those around us may be criticizing how we're pursuing our spiritual path, we may still find that our own sense of being a meditator or a yogi or a spiritual person helps us to feel good about ourselves, that it gives us an identity that we like and enjoy. So to the extent that we're admired or admire ourselves for our practice, this can be a source of gratification that we find in spiritual life. I got to get a little bit of a taste of what it must be like or must have been like uh, in long ago times or in other cultures when I was a nun in Burma. And there would be times when um, there would basically be big parties at the monastery. There are certain times of year, uh, such as during the rains retreat, when huge groups of lay people will come and make big offerings, kind of as a show of their devotion. So it can be like having, you know, a wedding reception or a bar mitzvah at the monastery. And as a foreign yogi, and a foreign yogi in robes as a nun, I would get a lot of attention from these uh, visitors that had come to the monastery to make offerings. So women in just beautiful silks, you know, their hair uh, done up in elaborate twists with flowers would, would come around and serve me my food. Sometimes they would even stand over me and fan me to keep the bugs off of me (laughs) while I ate. It's a bit of a trip. You don't tend to find that here at IMS. (laughs) And I could see, you know, after this went on for a while, you know, over the the period of time I was there, that I really enjoyed it quite a bit. (laughs) It really did, you know, give me a certain sense of being special in a way that was quite gratifying. So that was something that I had to work with. So these kinds of benefits are clearly pretty superficial because they just really involve gratification of our senses and our egos in pretty much the same way that we're moving through our lives trying to accomplish anyway. So they're not really helping us to address the basic problem of suffering that's brought us to practice in the first place. They're not really teaching us anything new about how to be in the world. And yet the Buddha didn't say that these superficial rewards of spiritual life were bad or that we needed to avoid them or condemn them. In fact, he said that we're bound to encounter them in some form or another, whether internally or externally. And they have their place in practice as a support for going deeper. There are times when a mindful cup of tea can really help to balance the mind so that we can carry on in our practice with greater ease and just keep going. Many of you may have received the tea prescription in your interviews. 
or perhaps the walk prescription. You know, these are ways that we help to balance the mind and bring some joy in when things get bleak. And there are times when we may be more diligent and pay closer attention in our practice because we are aware that others are nearby and may notice what we're doing, how we're practicing. That's kind of the whole principle behind sitting together in the hall like this. A little bit of wholesome peer pressure can really help us to pay closer attention at times. It's not nearly as extreme as it is uh, in Burma. There was a period, uh, again, there while I was a nun, when I was practicing in the center in the city, and there was this little old wizened monk who was kind of set uh, up as the the overseer over the female yogis that were there. Uh, And we all sat together in one hall, kind of about this size. And this little old monk uh, used a cane. Actually, I'm not sure if he really needed a cane to walk, but he used one (laughs) when he walked through the hall. And as we were all sitting there meditating or as we were uh, standing in the same hall and doing our walking meditation, you would hear the thump, thump, thump of the cane as he walked around and watched us. And this was really a great motivator for diligence. (laughs) So we don't uh, quite take it to that extreme here, but uh, we figured that just the uh, mindful eyes of your fellow yogis are enough of an incentive. But what the Buddha did say is that if we get too caught up in these superficial aspects of practice, if they start to become a main focus of our efforts, then they can become a big distraction. They can keep us from really going deeper and tasting the more substantial rewards that are possible. The Buddha said that it's possible for one to become intoxicated with gain, honor, and renown. It's possible because of this to grow negligent, to fall into negligence, and being negligent, to live in suffering. He said that a person who becomes intoxicated in this way is like a man needing heartwood and finding a great tree in the forest who took just the leaves and the twigs, thinking that they were really heartwood. So this is a lot of delusion. And this is something to look out for here on retreat, as well as in our ordinary life. If we think about it, you know, or if somebody asked us, we wouldn't say that this is what we're after in our practice, of course. You know, we wouldn't say that we're here to enjoy the extensive collection of IMSTs. We wouldn't say (laughs) that we're here to convince a room full of people that we hardly know that we're fantastic yogis. And yet, as we settle into retreat, we can start to lose our ordinary perspective on things, as you may have noticed. So it's worth asking ourselves from time to time whether that cup of tea is really helping us to be more mindful, or is it really just a way of procuring a bit of pleasant sense experience? Or we may reflect on whether doing really super slow walking at a particular time is really what's most supportive of our mindfulness. Or do we in some way enjoy that sense of being a good yogi that it gives us? And if we do find that we're craving pleasure or approval in these ways, then can we accept that? Because that's all that we really need to do. Can we turn the light of our mindfulness right onto that craving itself? and make it something to explore and experience. Because any time that we find ourselves lost in these leaves and twigs of spiritual life, we can come right back down to earth just by simply noticing what's going on, just by simply becoming aware of it, as with everything else. So if we can recognize and accept spiritual materialism when it crops up in our practice, then we won't be satisfied with those kinds of superficial rewards. We won't be content to just keep chasing after the gratification that it promises. And we'll start to bring it right into our practice, being mindful of those deeply conditioned tendencies that crave pleasure and approval. And because of this, our practice will inevitably deepen. And the Buddha described this deepening in this way. He said that one is not pleased with gain, honor, and renown, and his intention is not fulfilled by it. He does not grow negligent and fall into negligence. But being diligent, 
achieves the attainment of sila. And as you've heard a number of times now, maybe many times if you've been practicing for a while, this practice of sila refers to paying attention to our way of behaving in the world, to how we speak and act, basically, everything that we do. And doing our best whenever impossible, whenever possible, to speak and act from a place of kindness, of not wishing to cause harm to ourselves and others. Rebecca spoke a little bit about this practice of sila last night as one of the paramis, as one of those great uh, long-term purifications of the heart and mind that we're undertaking on this path. And it's such an important topic, really, and such an important part of our practice that Rebecca is going to give a whole talk on it this coming week. So you can look forward to that. So I'm not going to talk about it in a lot of detail tonight, but just a little bit with reference to this particular teaching. And what we see if we continue to practice with sincerity as best we can is that at some point we're going to recognize for ourselves the importance of sila even if it's not something that we're initially too concerned with. I know when I first took up meditation, I wasn't really looking to uh, improve my behavior. I was looking to learn how to meditate, and I didn't really understand the connection between the two. But it became apparent to me soon enough in a way that I think is really common. It often happens in this way, that we start going to a meditation class or... We start reading some Dharma books, we come on retreat, we get the basic instructions, and we sit down and try to put it into practice. We try to actually focus on our breath. And what we notice almost immediately is what a mess our minds are. That it wanders all over the place, out of control, doing all sorts of things that we don't want it to do, doing very little of what we do want it to do. That it's constantly falling into the grip of petty passions and squabbles, and that a huge amount of the time we're just not really even present. We're not even really connected with what's happening. And for almost everyone, when we first see this, it's a huge shock. I know it was for me and for many people that I've spoken to. And we may start to marvel, perhaps with no small amount of dismay, that this is how we're walking around in our lives most of the time, if not all of the time. And not only that, but that we're really making decisions and acting out of this jumble of confusion and obsession that we see in our minds. And very naturally out of that, we start to pay closer attention to what we're doing and why. It may be very small ways at first, and we may not even be aware of it at first. But at some point or another, it's bound to dawn on us that the choices that we make really matter. And we're no longer content to just fumble through life being pushed and pulled by our passions and obsessions. And I know from speaking with you that many of you here are very committed to your practice of sila, whether you think about it in those terms or not. Many of us here are grappling with really big and important questions about how to be in the world skillfully, how to live well, how to respond to the challenges that we encounter with wisdom and compassion. And these are really important questions to consider. This is a big part of the practice of sila, to reflect on these things. And it can be tremendously beneficial to bring that kind of awareness and wise intention into our activities in the world. And we also have to remember that these efforts are only a part of the bigger picture of spiritual life. And according to the Buddha, not even the most essential one at that. In his metaphor of the great tree of the Dharma, the Buddha compares the practice of sila to the outer bark of spiritual life, which in a way is an apt metaphor because it's the visible part. It's what's seen by the world at large. It's the visible manifestation of our practice. So as great as the benefits of the practice of sila can be, they're actually only the very tip of the iceberg of what's possible on this path, which is a pretty impressive assertion. 
I think it really says something about the extraordinary depth and potential of this tradition that a more skillful life, in a way, is, is the least of the benefits that we can expect from it. But just as with the more superficial rewards of practice that we may find through gain, honor, and renown, it's also possible to actually get caught up in our practice of sila so that we lose track of the deeper purpose of this practice. We can fall into thinking that the point of our practice is somehow to become better people and that everything that we're doing here is to serve that end. And again, it's not that it's wrong to take great delight in our practice of sila or cherish the rewards that it brings. In fact, it's perfectly appropriate to do so. It's one of uh, the most wholesome and appropriate sources of joy that we can find in life. But we don't want to lose sight of the greater benefits that are possible just because we're so focused on concerns about how to live our lives and how to conduct ourselves in the world. If we become content to devote most of our time and energy to practice and benefits of sila, then in a way we've also stopped far short of the goal of spiritual life. Not as short as being content with the gratification of gain, honor, and renown, but still quite shy of the goal of freedom from suffering. So the Buddha calls one who's too caught up in the practice of sila, one who has taken the outer bark of spiritual life and stopped short with that. And he says that when this happens, one becomes intoxicated with the attainment of moral discipline, grows negligent, falls into negligence, and being negligent lives in suffering. So this is a really interesting statement, that even if we're putting a lot of energy and attention into living more skillfully, into living more wisely and compassionately, we're still bound to suffer if we don't also continue to do the powerful inner work that will bring us lasting transformation of our hearts and minds. And that's why we're constantly encouraging you and reminding you here to set aside your worldly concerns, to set aside all of those stories for the time that you're here. There's a time and a place and many skillful ways to engage with all of those challenges from a place of compassion and wisdom but it's not here. <laughs> if we let those preoccupations consume our time and energy here, then we're taking the outer bark of the tree of the Dharma and missing this precious opportunity to go deeper in search of the heartwood. This was something that I kind of learned for myself on the first three-month retreat that I did here. I learned a lot on that retreat. <laughs> And at the time when I sat that retreat, I was in the process of planning my wedding to get married. I planned to be married several months after I ended the retreat. And um, as is somewhat common, there was a fair amount of contention <laughs> about the wedding, about where to hold it and how to hold it and who to invite and all of the details. Uh, any, of you that y any of you that have been married may be able to relate. There's a saying that if you can survive the wedding, then you can survive the marriage. And that was definitely the case uh, in my family, in my husband's family. So I came on retreat around this time that we were doing all this planning and tried my best to follow the instructions. I started to develop, develop some mindfulness and concentration. And I started to experience really a lot more clarity of mind than I'd had in a long time. And Thoughts about my wedding came up, which was very natural. And I found that I started to see things in a new light. I started to see things more from uh, the perspective of metta, of wanting to find uh, solutions to all of these little details that would satisfy everyone, that would make everyone happy, rather than just satisfying my own personal uh, desires for how things should go. And I became convinced that it would be a really good use of my time in retreat to plan my wedding. <laughs> it's always something. <laughs> I figured that it would be a great place to come up with really enlightened solutions to all of these problems. You know, I'd be really able to figure it all out in a way that would make everyone happy. And of course, you can see where this is, is headed. You know, you've seen this in your own practice with whatever your equivalent of planning your wedding is. 
it's not long before concentration starts to deteriorate from all the thinking. It wasn't long before that clarity of mind that I was trying to work from uh, started to fade. And it wasn't long before I had wound myself up into a completely tight little ball of craving and aversion around this whole story. And I was even convinced that I had to get on the phone and start making calls and start trying to work things out. And at one point, I just kind of looked at what I was doing, at what I was caught up in, even though it was coming from a very wholesome motive, you know, to find good solutions. And I just realized how painful it was compared to just being present. It was so unproductive compared to just being present. I realized what an unproductive use of my time here it was with a little help from my teachers. And so in time, after a little bit of struggling with it, I let it go and I was able to just carry on with my practice, with a new appreciation for you know, why we're always being told to let the stories go. So if we recognize that the practice of seal is only one part of spiritual life, and that we also need to address the root of the problem and take a look at the mental states that are actually driving that activity in the world, then we'll also find time in our lives for meditation. And because of this, our practice will inevitably deepen. And the Buddha described this deepening in this way. One is pleased with the attainment of moral discipline, but his intention is not fulfilled by it, and he does not fall into negligence. But being diligent, he achieves the attainment of samadhi, So this Pali word samadhi is an interesting one. It's often translated as concentration, but you sometimes see it translated as tranquility or calm. And it really has both senses because there's a direct link between the two. A concentrated mind is still and tranquil, and a calm mind is concentrated and focused. All of those qualities come together in one package. And what we mean by samadhi here, when we speak about it, what's meant by it in uh, the discourses and in the teachings, as has been mentioned before, is really the calming or stilling of the difficult states of mind that we call the hindrances that Sharda spoke about at length the other night. The forces of craving and aversion, the difficulties of low energy or high energy, restlessness, and the very difficult uh, hindrance of doubt and one reason that these qualities of mind are called hindrances is that they hinder concentration, very specifically. They keep us from experiencing enough mental calm to just be able to be present with our actual experience in the moment. So this aspect of practice called samadhi is about quieting those difficult states of mind, of bringing them to rest temporarily so the mind can be at ease, so that the mind can be clear. Once we start meditating and really see what a mess our minds are, the desire naturally arises to calm things down. We've all felt this here on retreat. If only things would just quiet down for a little while, if only I could get a break from all of this turmoil. It's a very natural and universal impulse, and it's what leads us into this next deeper aspect of practice which is really to develop our meditation skills to the point where we can cultivate some mental discipline, some mental discipline to go along with the behavioral discipline that we're cultivating through sila. And this is called samadhi bhavana, samadhi bhavana, the cultivation of tranquility or concentration. And there are many, many ways of doing this. There are many ways of calming the mind. It's said that this practice of calming the mind, finding ways to still the mind and quiet it, will always be present in the world as long as there are human beings. That even if no Buddha arises to teach us about wisdom, there will always be somebody who figures out ways to calm the mind because it is such a universal human longing. The Buddha himself described 40 meditation techniques for calming the mind. And we find those in uh, the Discourse on the Foundations of Mindfulness, which is really our guide to practice here. 
there were many concentration techniques that were already in use in his time. He practiced uh, in his search for enlightenment with some of the great uh, concentration masters of his time and achieved great depths of stillness and concentration. So then as now, there was a very rich assortment of spiritual practices available in India. And some of these were pretty bizarre, <laughs> as they are today, and not too helpful. But some of them were also quite useful for quieting the mind. And so the Buddha picked out the ones that he thought were useful and gave them his own particular spin and incorporated them into his teachings. I guess he figured that there wasn't really any need to reinvent the wheel. And the technique that he recommended first and foremost was mindfulness of the breath, just what we're doing here. He said that this would be effective for almost everyone. This was the most universally useful tool. And that's why we offer it as the main tool here. That's why we emphasize it so much. But he also said that sometimes, or for some people, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't be effective. So he gave 39 alternatives, just in case. He wanted to cover all the bases. And we also offer a variety of those tools here. Things like being mindful of our thoughts, being mindful of our feelings, being mindful of our intentions. All of these are tools that the Buddha offered. And the fact that the Buddha offered so many different possible ways to quiet the mind, um, to me, says that it doesn't really matter which one that we use, just as long as it's based in mindfulness and does lead the calming of the hindrances to the quieting of the mind. And here on retreat, we have this great opportunity to really take the time and experiment with different techniques and see what works best for our mind and body and how to apply them. So through some combination of approaches, we develop our meditation skills and we cultivate this aspect of samadhi. And lo and behold, we start to actually experience some periods of rest in the midst of all the wanderings of the mind. It may be just a moment here and there at first, or it may eventually come to be quite long periods of time that were really quiet and peaceful. Periods of calm where the body is comfortable and relaxed and at ease. And the mind is also comfortable and relaxed and at ease. And we can just rest in the flow of what's happening in the present moment. For some of us, as concentration deepens, we may also start to have some quite unusual or dramatic experiences. And there's all sorts of things that can happen within this practice. We may see lights or visions. There may be a sense of floating or rocking, uh, altered perceptions of the body or the world around us. Uh, there may be, at times, spontaneous movements of the body, energy moving through the body in unusual ways, all sorts of things. It's pretty much anything can happen. <laughs> and some of these odd effects may actually be unpleasant at times, but still there's a sense of excitement or delight associated with them, a sense of interest, joyful interest. But however concentration manifests for us, when it really starts to gain momentum, it feels very different from our ordinary experience. That's the one thing that we always notice, is that we're in a very different place from our ordinary way of being. Whether it's peaceful and calm, or whether it's dramatic and exciting, it's clear that this is something very different, different way of being. And samadhi has many benefits. The great sense of ease and delight that comes with it in and of itself as a benefit in the moment that it's happening. And it brings with it this ability to focus the mind and really connect with our present experience. If we look at the suttas and the discourses, the Buddha really praised samadhi repeatedly and in very strong terms. He spoke about it all the time and talked about how essential it was on the spiritual path. And yet he said that even this is not the goal of spiritual life. It's not the heartwood that we're seeking. He said that a person who's content with the attainment of concentration is like one who has taken the inner bark of spiritual life and stopped short with that. 
Samadhi is a notoriously seductive aspect of spiritual life. Once we get a taste of that peace and quiet in our hearts and minds, it's really hard not to want more. It's practically inevitable, in fact, that we will want more. I won't say that there's nobody that doesn't get hooked by this, but I certainly haven't encountered anyone. It's just so much more pleasant than coping with all of that physical discomfort and obsessive thoughts and the painful emotions. For many of us, it may be the most thoroughly enjoyable experience that we've ever had. Far better, far more refined, far more spiritual than any sense of pleasure we've ever enjoyed. So it's so tempting to think that this is it. This is what it's about. This is the goal. That this is the heartwood of the practice. Our teacher Upandita calls this kind of view fake nirvana. When we start to hit really strong experiences of, of concentration and tranquility, we can really believe that we found the answer, that we've tasted enlightenment even. And we can really resist any suggestion from our teacher that perhaps we haven't. <laughs> we can really resist any instructions perhaps from our teachers that we ought to do anything that might diminish our concentration. Even before we experience it, in fact, we can fall into mistakenly thinking that this is the goal of spiritual life. And that's because the only way that we've ever known of escaping suffering is to replace it with some kind of pleasure. That's our whole paradigm for how we've moved through the world. When something doesn't feel good, we seek out something that does. So we imagine that the goal of this practice is to have pleasant meditative experiences of peace and bliss. We may imagine that in a more or less conscious way, a more or less explicit way, but that idea creeps in very easily. That's why we tend to fall into evaluating the merit of our meditation based on how pleasant it is, which is an almost universal phenomenon. However, the problem with the delight with the piece of samadhi, which we realize very quickly once we start to experience it, is that it doesn't last. We may have some freedom from suffering, but only temporarily. And so, in a way, we get addicted to those experiences. Rather than running after the next pleasant sense experience, we just switch to running after the next pleasant meditative experience and we're elated when samadhi comes and we have this enjoyment and we're dejected when it leaves. We think, what have we done wrong? What did we do to make it go? How did we fail? Some of you may have experienced the pretty universal phenomena of feeling let down after a good sitting or a good retreat, one that had a lot of concentration. We think that it didn't work. You know, we got it, but we lost it. But this is just really simply the nature of samadhi. It's very highly conditioned, as has been spoken about in some of the other talks. Everything really has to come together just right for it to arise. And when conditions change, then it also goes. So we can't really say that samadhi solves our fundamental problem of suffering. This is why the Buddha compared the attainment of samadhi, as wonderful as it is when it's present, to just the inner bark of spiritual life. That's not a very high status, the inner bark. He said that a person who's too caught up in the pursuit of concentration is pleased with the attainment of concentration, and his intention is fulfilled by it. He becomes intoxicated with the attainment of concentration, grows negligent, falls into negligence, and being negligent, he lives in suffering. So again, it's not that the experience of samadhi is a problem. It's wonderful, and it's very useful on the spiritual path, so long as we don't get distracted by it and stop looking deeper. But the fact is that most of us do get distracted by it, at least for a while. And this is really a natural part of the path. It's okay if this happens. We don't need to panic if we see that we're searching for that next great hit of samadhi from our meditation. As with everything else, all we need to do is simply become aware of that craving. 
to bring that desire right into our practice as something to be accepted and investigated, just like everything else. There was a period in my practice in Burma again when I struggled with this quite a bit. I had had a lot of difficulty at the beginning of my time, a lot of physical discomfort, coping with the change in climate and food and routine. And it had just been really unpleasant for a long time. But at some point, my concentration began to build. And I started to see this beautiful white light, <laughs> which is a very common experience. There's nothing particularly noteworthy about it. <laughs> but it just filled the vision. And my body was filled with just light feelings, very pleasant, very comfortable. And so I paid attention to it. I thought, oh, light, light, oh, comfort, comfort. Paid a lot of attention to it. Really thought I was following the instructions and being mindful. And I would go in day after day. This went on for quite some time, for weeks, really. And I would go in and report, oh, the light and the comfort and the ease and everything's so clear. And my teacher would just kind of nod. Hmm. <laughs> and he'd say, carry on. And I guess he waited for a while for me to get tired of this experience, but I didn't seem to be getting tired of it. <laughs> so one day, after this had been going on for a while, I came in and again reported the same thing, you know, light, ease, comfort. And he just looked at me and said, so where is this getting you? <laughs> in his very succinct way. And I thought, oh, yeah. Where is this getting me? <laughs> it was a lot of effort. You know, I was concentrating very hard, making a big effort, seeking out this experience in every sitting. And where was it getting me? It wasn't getting me anywhere. So I was able to sharpen up my attention a little bit at that point, rather than just kind of half paying attention to, oh, yes, there's light, there's comfort, to really sharpen it up and be aware of, oh, this is the experience of seeing, seeing light. This is the experience of lightness in the body. This is the experience of calm. And to really just continue on with my practice in exactly the same way, just noticing what was happening in the midst of this very pleasant experience. So if we're diligent and we continue to be mindful of all of the thoughts and feelings that come up for us around our experiences of samadhi, then at some point we realize that freedom from suffering, this freedom from suffering that the Buddha talked about and promised, does not mean having a continuous stream of pleasant experiences, either sensual or meditative. And that's really a major turning point on the path. That's the point at which we can stop chasing after gratification from the practice and just really get down to the business of applying ourselves to see what's really going on here and now in our minds and bodies. Just seeing what is it that we need to learn to find true peace and happiness, lasting peace and happiness, something that's more reliable, something that's more stable than the fleeting pleasures of samadhi. And ironically, once we make this shift and focus on our practice, our samadhi actually tends to increase and to deepen. Not that the mind stops wandering, but we have more and longer periods of calm. Enough calm in our minds that we can start to see things as they really are. And the Buddha says about this deepening that being diligent, one achieves knowledge and vision. The phrase knowledge and vision refers to what we call insight here. That's why we call this the Insight Meditation Society. We're seeking this kind of knowledge and vision. So we use the samadhi that we cultivate as a tool to know and see things as they truly are. And insight in this sense, in this teaching, refers specifically to seeing the three characteristics, the three universal characteristics of experience that have been spoken about uh, a number of times now and will be spoken about more. The characteristics of anicca, impermanence, and dukkha, the inability of experience to provide lasting satisfaction, and anatta, the fact that our experience is fundamentally outside of our control. 
It's the experience of seeing the fleeting, evanescent, ephemeral nature of experience. And this insight develops gradually, as with everything else, starting at first with brief glimpses and eventually leading to longer and longer periods of directly experiencing these truths. These deepening layers of insight are kind of like those rings on a great tree. You know, if you look at the cross section of one of those big redwoods or uh, an old tree that's been cut down, you see these in museums and visitor centers sometimes. I remember seeing them in school as a child at show and tell. You can see so many rings, layer after layer of accumulation. And the going down through the depths of insight is kind of like this. There's layer after layer of seeing these deep truths of the three universal characteristics of phenomena, layer after layer of seeing deepening levels of impermanence, deepening levels of suffering, deepening levels of impersonality. And some of these layers are quite blissful. There may be times when we open to these truths and it's a huge relief. We feel like a great weight has been lifted off of our shoulders, like, oh, it's not all my responsibility. It's not all about me. I can relax. And then at other times, we may hit layers that are really quite distressing, where it feels like the rug's been completely pulled out from under our feet. Our whole framework for how we understand the world, our whole idea of what we are, who we are, has been taken away from us. And this can be quite distressing, quite disturbing. And then there are also layers where there's a great equanimity, just a deep acceptance of these truths, neither blissful and relieved or distressed and upset, but just accepting in a deep way that this is how things are, seeing these truths in a way where we can rest at peace with them. So there's many layers to this insight. It's not something that just comes once and then we've got it. This is something that it also took me some time to figure out, and I started seeing for the first time on that same first three-month retreat that I did here. I remember I was sitting uh, kind of up in the front on the right-hand side of the hall here <laughs> in the spot that I'd chosen for that retreat, and working and working, doing my best, trying to follow the instructions, and there came a moment when I just saw with more clarity than I'd ever seen before a single thought arise in the mind, play itself out, and then pass, completely beyond my control. And this wasn't something that I reflected on. It wasn't that I reflected after the fact that, oh yeah, it arose, it did its thing, it ended, and I wasn't in control. As it was happening, I could really feel deeply what was happening, the truth of it. And I felt that great sense of relief, that great sense of having that burden lifted, that, oh, it's just life doing itself. And many of you here have seen this and felt that sense of relief. So I went into my next interview thinking, well, now I've really got it. I've got it. <laughs> I've seen this impermanence that they're always talking about. Now I understand. And I reported to, to my teacher who said, you know, good, carry on. <laughs> so I did. And at some point a little bit later, I had a similar experience with a different phenomena. But this one was clearer. This one was more vivid. It was more convincing. And I thought, oh, well, I thought I saw it before, but I guess I didn't really see it. But now, now I've really seen it. <laughs> and this kept happening over and over again during the course of my early practice. And it actually took quite a while before I started to get that there's a lot to get. <laughs> this doesn't just sink in right away. We have to see it over and over again in many different ways before we really absorb this truth, that it's a deep truth, that it's hard to see, it's hard to know. So we watch our experiences constantly changing. We watch how our pleasant experiences disappear. We watch how our experiences arise and pass without invitation or control. And by seeing this over and over again, we come to deeply know the truth of these characteristics. And as our insight deepens, we automatically start to move through life 
more and more in tune with the truth of the way things are. We develop an increasing equanimity about life's ups and downs. We stop expecting experience to play out in ways that are not consistent with what we know to be true about how things actually operate. We stop expecting things to last or to give lasting gratification. And we stop taking everything so incredibly personally. And all of this leads to a deeper, subtler, and more pervasive sense of ease and peace in our lives, much deeper than the relatively short episodes of tranquility that come from samadhi. So it provides a stronger and more reliable refuge from suffering than samadhi or sila. And yet the Buddha said that even this benefit of spiritual life is not the goal of this practice. He said that one who's content with knowing and seeing things as they truly are is one who's taken the sapwood of spiritual life and stopped short with that. So there's something still to be gained. There's something still to be realized, even beyond this. How can that be? It's because for a long time, the quantity and quality of insight and equanimity that we can access as a result of our practice is relatively variable. At times, it may be quite strong and reliable. Difficulties arise, and we can draw the strength of our practice for balance and peace. But at other times, this wisdom may wane. Something happens, and it catches us off guard. We can't quite connect with that understanding that we've developed, and we fall into suffering again. With time and practice, our insight will become more stable. It will become more reliable and more profound. And yet we may still encounter suffering that it doesn't protect us from. So even knowing and seeing deep truths through insight cannot provide us with a completely reliable refuge from suffering. So if we don't rest on our laurels when insight arises in our practice, then again it will continue to deepen. Each time we sit, each retreat, each moment that we're mindful as we move through our lives, we get the message of the three characteristics more and more clearly, more and more powerfully, on subtler and subtler levels, until finally there comes a point when we get it so clearly, so powerfully, that it's impossible to forget it's impossible to ever fall away from that understanding. We know the truth of things so deeply that we develop unshakable equanimity and we're unable to ever truly suffer again. This is what the Buddha called perpetual emancipation, complete enlightenment, liberation from all suffering. And this is the heartwood of our practice. This is the heartwood of spiritual life. This is what the sutta says. Suppose a man needing heartwood, seeking heartwood, wandering in search of heartwood, came to a great tree standing possessed of heartwood, and cutting off only its heartwood, he would take it away, knowing that it was heartwood. Then a man with good sight upon seeing him might say, whatever it was that this good man had to make with heartwood, his purpose will be served. So too it is with the person who attains perpetual liberation. So this at last is the goal of spiritual life, the heartwood, the complete and final liberation from all suffering. So let's sit for a minute.
Suppose a man needing heartwood, seeking heartwood, wandering in search of heartwood, came to a great tree standing possessed of heartwood, and cutting off only its heartwood, he would take it away, knowing that it was heartwood. Then a man with good sight upon seeing him might say, Whatever it was that this good man had to make with heartwood, his purpose will be served. So too it is with the person who attains perpetual liberation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.